And if you uh, are just joining us, or if you even have been tracking with us for a while now, we have been going through uh, really our statement of faith, looking uh, to see how our statement of faith captures, summarizes, if you will, uh, biblical doctrines uh, in Scripture. And so we uh, have really been looking and exploring some foundational things, and and hopefully by God's grace over the course of the summer, uh, we have been able to see uh, what this necessitates us uh, philosophically, how we should uh, function as a church, how we should function as individuals uh, in society as well. But uh, beginning next week, I'm going to do a uh, just a short kind of four-week series that uh, really uh, reiterates uh, that how we should function in light of God's revealed Word. And so I would just encourage you uh, to just journey with us. Um, but um, we are looking at this morning, uh, and as you see on your worship guide, just the, the state of man after death. We're looking at the resurrection of the dead. We're looking at last judgment, and consequentially, we're looking at uh, how God in Christ will make all things new in the new heavens and the new earth. And so uh, one of the themes over the last several weeks has been accountability to God, uh, our government is accountable to God. Husbands and wives, especially husbands, are accountable to God. Elders are accountable to God. And, and, and really, we see from the, the sweeping testimony of Scripture that every single person ever created will, will, will stand before their Creator and they'll, they'll give an account to him. And, and the thing is, everybody knows this. Everybody knows that when everything's said and done, they're going to give an account to their maker. When the lights are off, when we're, when we're lying in bed with, with just our thoughts, we know instinctually that we're going to give an account to the God of the cosmos, to this holy God that we just sang to, that we just sang about. Romans 1 teaches us this much, but, but Romans chapter 1 also teaches us that, that we suppress this reality, this, this truth. We, we numb it with our unrighteousness, according to the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1. We numb it with our sin. We numb it with uh, or suppress it with our own rebellion. And when we do this, we begin to think and live as if we're autonomous, right? If, if, as if we ourselves are gods, right? Governments begin to operate as if they won't, begin, uh, they won't give an account to God and they govern tyrannically. Husbands become harsh and cold and unloving. Wives become embittered. Elders in the church become arrogant and cryptic and deceptive and the rest of us follow suit, right? But the thing is, what's important for us to understand is that we're not autonomous. We're not autonomous. We're not gods. We are creatures created in the image of God, and we're obligated to live and to function in light of that fixed reality. This this is God's world. We sang that just a moment ago. God owns this world, and how we view it and how we function in it, it matters. Now, if the last year and a half has taught us anything, it's, it's taught us how uncomfortable we are with death. 
wildly uncomfortable with death. And I can't help but wonder if in it all, if it further showcases the reality that we all know, really know, that we must give an account. If, If death is all there is, what are we so scared of? The Bible, it it makes clear that we all die. The Bible makes clear that we're all eternal. Death is not all that there is. We we don't die and then cease to exist. There's something more. And as we'll see, if you're in Christ, there's something so much better than this reality that we now live in. This morning we're going to do, like I said, we're going to do another biblical survey of sorts. I've kind of done this several times over this series, but we're going to do a biblical survey on on death, on on the final judgment, and on the resurrection of the dead. And so allow allow me to pray, and then we're just going to jump right in this morning. And like I said, I'm going to kind of jump around from passage to passage as we just kind of build, if you will, a biblical theology of these topics. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you again for this time that we uh, have had to be able to come and sing to you, Lord, to make melody to you with word, scripture-informed lyrics. And God, I, I pray that as we continue to worship you, Lord, that you would strengthen us, God, that you would keep us from despair, Lord, that our hope would be anchored in Christ Jesus, who alone is sufficient for our salvation. There's no other name by which men are saved, by which men can be brought in relationship with you, our holy God, except through Christ Jesus alone. And so help us to just live in that, God. Help us to never grow tired or numb or or bored with that. And so, Lord, as we, over the next few minutes, look at death, a topic that we're prone to be wildly uncomfortable with. Lord, help us to look forward to being with Christ. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you're taking notes, you could jot this down. Death is a temporary separation of body and soul. Death is a temporary separation of body and soul. And so you were made both body and soul. The scripture uh, makes that clear. But just a a few passages that I want to just bring to our attention, and then we'll look at them a bit uh, closer. And I think we have it where uh, the slide may be built where we can look at the the three passages together. But Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 7 and 8, Solomon, uh, also referred to here as the preacher, he says, And the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the Spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. If we were to flip over the New Testament, Luke chapter 23, verse 43, Jesus says to the thief on the cross, says, and he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Or if we venture further into the New Testament and we look at Uh, Philippians chapter 1, and we look at particularly verses 23 and 24, we see the Apostle Paul say this, I'm hard-pressed, as he writes to the church of Philippi, I'm hard-pressed between the two, living and dying. He says, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. 
but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. There is for us a, a temporary separation, if you will, between our body and our soul, and one in which I think we, we mistakenly uh, think is permanent. But in reality, those of us that, are, that die, that are in Christ, our body and soul temporarily separate from each other, and our soul goes to be with the Lord immediately. Immediately. Right? There, there's, there's no waiting room. There's no purgatory, if you will. Right? We're ushered immediately into the presence of the Lord. Right? We, we have the word of the preacher. We have the word of Solomon here that, that speaks of this division between the body and the soul. Our body, which is the dust here described in Ecclesiastes, returns to dust. All right? And our spirit, which can also be translated as soul, goes to be with the Lord who gave it, right? Who, who breathed life into the dust. That's one of the very first things, it's the very first act that we see uh, as God is fashioning man, right? His breathing of life into man. Right. Then we see the, the thief of the, on the cross in, in, in the Luke passage here. This thief who who knew very little about Christ Jesus, this thief who was never baptized, this thief who didn't live a righteous life at all, we see him look to Jesus on the cross beside him being crucified, and we see him look to Jesus as his only hope. And then we see Christ promise this sinner who's lived his entire life just in the, the filth of his own sin and his own pleasures, we see him look at this thief and promise himself in paradise. And there seems to be an immediacy to it. Right? Today you will be with me in paradise. Right? Paradise is on the horizon, if you will, of death for those that are in Christ Jesus. And then we see the words of the Apostle Paul in the book of Philippians, and, and we see how he has a desire to, to go and be with the Lord, right? He's not suicidal by any means. This isn't any, anything morbid or sinful uh, that he's, this is, this is a, a godly perspective, if you will. He just, he just longs to be with his Savior, and, and he has confidence that, that upon his own death that he will, in fact, be with his Savior, Right? He, he, he calls it his death, his own departing. And he, and he says that in his departing, he's going to go to the far better place. So, so Solomon had the hope of heaven in his heart upon the contemplation of death. Right? Jesus gave the thief on the cross the hope of heaven upon his death. And then Paul had the hope of heaven and, and would think of his death Right? And instead of trying to, to not think about death and to stay as far away as possible from death, which is oftentimes what we see happen in our society, he would use his death as a means by which he would encourage himself to press on. There's something better coming, and I can't wait to be there. And if you're in Christ, you have that same hope. You have that same hope. 
Now, notice something that, just considering these three passages together, I want us to notice something that's interesting, something that is significant here. We see that the Lord is the focal point of heaven. The Lord is the focal point of heaven. Braden read a book on heaven. My wife read a book on heaven years ago, and when she got to the end of it, we started discussing it. And, And oddly enough, the thing missing from her book about heaven was God himself, right? All this, all these, uh, uh, being without sin, being without sickness, being without suffering, which is all great, and man, we should look forward to that. But what makes heaven heaven is the Lord Himself being there. All right, our three passages show an emphasis, a large agreement, and you'll find this the focal point in all of Scripture that God Himself is what makes heaven something to look forward to. All right, for Solomon, the spirit of man returns to who? Returns to the God who gave it. Returns to the God who gave it. The thief on the cross, all right, we, we see Jesus make abundantly clear that the thing that makes paradise paradise is his very presence. Jesus says, you'll be with me in paradise. Not that you'll be in paradise, You'll be with me in paradise. All right, for Paul, the reason death could be welcomed is because his departure meant a reunion with Jesus. And if you're a Christian this morning, the very hope of heaven is grounded in the reality that upon your very death, you're with Jesus. All right, heaven is heaven. Because a believer is in the presence of God, clothed in the blood of Jesus, in everlasting rest. And not just in the presence of God, but as we just sang about, we're in the presence of a holy God, covered in the blood of Jesus, in everlasting rest. And while we shouldn't look for ways to expedite our death as Christians... We, we shouldn't fear it. We shouldn't fear it. Right? If, if we're in Christ, we have the ability to draw near death in confidence. Not confidence in ourselves, but we draw near and we face it in light of our confidence in Christ. We're not to be gripped by fear upon our contemplation of dying. Again, we shouldn't want to hasten it, but Paul was able to use his reflection of death to drive his faithfulness, even in the here and now. He longed to be with his Savior. The thief had something to look forward to at the the conclusion of his crucifixion, which, again, by the way, he deserved, deserved to be crucified. So this morning, we should contemplate death, and as we do, we need to ask ourselves a, a few questions. Are, are, are we trying to live as a people that are attempting to avoid giving an account to the Lord? All right. Again, the last year and a half has demonstrated just how fearful people are of dying. And, and from the Christian viewpoint, death is certainly an enemy, but it's an enemy that's been conquered by the bodily resurrection of Christ Jesus. So do you operate from some humanistic perspective? This is all there is. Do you, do you, do you, uh, are you fearful of death because you know deep down that you're going to give an account to the Lord? 
Or do you rest in God's timetable for your life and cling to the hope of Christ as you long to see your Savior face to face? Now, for those of us that are not in Christ, death should be a fearful thought because there's a a temporary separation of the body and soul for those not in Christ as well. Our, Our confession says, 1689 says in chapter 31, paragraph 1, it says, the bodies of men after death return to dust and see corruption, but their souls, which neither die nor sleep, having an immortal subsistence, immediately return to God who gave them. The souls of the righteous being then made perfect in holiness are received into paradise, where they are with Christ, and behold the face of God in light and glory. We see the centrality of the Lord there, waiting, and this is key, and we'll get to this a little bit more in a minute, waiting for the full redemption of their bodies. And then we see this, the souls of the wicked, this terrible news here, the souls of the wicked are cast into hell, where they remain in torment and utter darkness, reserved to the judgment of the great day. Besides Besides these two places for souls separated from their bodies, the Scripture acknowledges none. Now, we see Christ, and if you're familiar with your Bibles at all, we see Christ uh, speak of hell. He actually mentions hell even more than heaven is talked about in the New Testament. But just again, to give you a, a bit of a survey, we see in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, we see the Lord say, don't fear those who could who can kill the body, right? He's trying to instill God-centered courage here. Don't fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. And the, the word under that, and we'll get to this in a minute, is Gehenna. Gehenna is the word behind hell. Matthew chapter 13, verse 42, or actually jump back to verse 41 to 43. The Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. We see this also in Matthew twenty-five thirty, And then verse 43 says, Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. And then Mark chapter 9, verses 42 to 49 And don't stress about jotting all this down. We have these references in your worship guide. It says, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin... Cut it off. It's far better for you to enter lame, enter life lame, than with two feet to be thrown in hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown in hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, for everyone will be salted with fire. Right? The Lord is is saying that um, he's he's pressing in on the seriousness of repentance. Repent quickly. Uh, um, uh, because uh, these are eternal matters. The the late R.C. Sproul says that the doctrine that he struggled with the most is the doctrine of hell. And and, and if we're honest, 
this is perhaps one of the most difficult and unsettling doctrines in all of Scripture. I, I think this is the case, one, because we, we don't grasp, not really, we don't grasp how holy God is. We, don't, we, we sing about it, and we get glimpses of it as we, we read in Scripture, but we don't really understand experientially how holy God is. And then secondly, I think we also end up comparing ourselves to other people, and we genuinely think, well, I'm not doing that bad, right? Instead of adopting the confession of Isaiah, who, when he was in the presence of the Lord, he said, woe is me, for I'm unclean and I live amongst a people who are unclean, Isaiah chapter 6. But Christ, he describes hell very vividly for us, and the word that he picks up on, and I mentioned it a moment ago, that's translated as hell is the word Gehenna, which was a valley near Jerusalem. And this place is described some in Jeremiah chapter 7 and 2 Kings 23. I'll just read quickly there. Jeremiah chapter 7, first the Lord speaking through Jeremiah, says, they have built the high places of Tophet, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command, nor did it come into my mind. Therefore, and, and just grasp the, how significantly wicked this place is. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it will no, be, uh, no more be called uh, Tophet, or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. For they will bury in Tophet, because there's no room elsewhere, and the dead bodies of this people will be food for the birds of the air and for the beasts of the earth, and none will frighten them away. And then if you look at Second Kings chapter 23, verses 9 and 10, in the midst of the, the reforms that Josiah was making, we see this. The priest of the high places did not come up to the altar of the Lord in Jerusalem, but they ate unleavened bread among their brothers, and he defiled Tophet which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, that no one might burn his son or his daughter as an offering to Molech. This valley was the place where children were sacrificed to the god Molech, particularly by wicked kings in Judah. It was called the, the valley of slaughter. This is the, what is behind the word that Christ uses to describe the future of those that are not in Christ. And, and listen to some of the imagery from the passage, passages I just read in the New Testament. Matthew 13, we see a fiery furnace is a, can conjure up images, if you will. We see, and this is elsewhere, not just in Matthew 13, but weeping and gnashing of teeth. We see in Mark 9, the unquenchable fire. We see it's the place where uh, in verse 48 of Mark 9, the place where the worm doesn't die, where the fire is not quenched. Right? Jesus took the worst place uh, people in his day could imagine, and he used that place to describe an eternal hell. And if we're reading that, and it doesn't shock our conscience what was going on uh, in the Valley of Slaughter, it's only because in the U.S. we've been so desensitized by abortion that we don't feel, we don't realize that that children are being sacrificed to the God of Molech even now. But God, Christ used this place to describe an eternal hell. 
this was an eternal hell. And, 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 and I would say what's often missing from a conversation on, on an eternal hell right, that, 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 that is infinitely worse than anything that we can imagine from an experiential level is, is, is that it's where the righteous wrath of God is poured out for all eternity on those that are not in Christ. God doesn't change his standards. He doesn't diminish his holiness. He doesn't diminish his justice and his, his righteous red-hot wrath and anger toward sin. Right? And so we need to flee to Christ. We need to flee, flee to Christ where God as well on the cross of Christ Jesus didn't diminish his standards, didn't change his holiness. God didn't withhold his wrath on his perfect Son. And everybody in this room has an opportunity, if you're not in Christ, to be covered, as Clark was talking about. He takes our sin upon himself, and in exchange, we get clothed in his righteousness, his blood, his sacrifice, not, not just physical sacrifice, which certainly is depicted as we, uh, w- was intense, and we, we, we've seen depicted in various places, but what can't be depicted is the wrath of God poured out on the Son fully for our sin, for those that are in Christ. So death is a temporary separation of the body and soul, where where some go to be with Christ, those who, again, have been clothed in the righteousness of Christ, and some go to eternal torment. But that's not all that we see. We, We see that there's a new world coming as well. There's a new world coming, and, and I, want, I want this new world to be our framing for three things. It's going to be our framing for three things. Number one, the, the reality that our bodies will, in fact, be reunited with our souls. I, I preached extensively on this earlier this year when we did our sermon series through the book, book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and so I would encourage you to go and listen to that. But three things, our bodies will be reunited with our souls. Secondly, there will be a final judgment, those in Christ to life and those not in Christ to judgment. And third, the new heavens and the new earth will be our permanent resting place, will be our permanent resting place. So let's look just briefly, our bodies, the part, our bodies being reunited with our souls. And again, we worked through this in, our, in this past spring, but look at 1 Corinthians 15 verses 20 to 25 with me quickly. Starting with verse 20, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign, Christ must reign, until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. It's the resurrection of Jesus that, A, guarantees that death is a defeated enemy. Christ in his bodily, again, we worked through this uh, earlier this year, but Christ defeated death in his bodily resurrection. He's defeating death now, and he will definitively defeat death when he comes and returns and when our souls are uh, um, reunited with our body and we're with our Lord forever in the new heavens and the new earth. 
But we also see that our resurrected body will be like Christ. So death is a defeated enemy, right? And for those that are in Christ, we will be resurrected with a body like Christ. And the order is given this way in 1 Corinthians 15. Christ bodily and eternally rose. Christ will physically return to set everything right, definitively right. And then those who belong to Christ will rise, their souls reunited with their body. That's kind of what we see in that short section in 1 Corinthians 15. But chapter 31 and paragraph 2 of the confession of our statement of faith summarizes it this way. At the last day, such of the saints as are found alive shall not sleep, but be changed. And all the dead shall be raised up with the selfsame bodies and none other, although with different qualities which shall be united again to their souls forever. Right? Same bodies, but different. Right? A, a, a glorified body. Right? This is, theologians have called this the doctrine of glorification, the glorification of the saints. Those in Christ will be changed to be like Him in the resurrection, right? We're kind of uh, changing day by day um, by God's grace and through his means more into the image of Christ Jesus. We will finally and ultimately be changed and conformed into the, into the image of Christ Jesus when he returns and the dead in Christ rise. But we also see the resurrection of those that are not in Christ. The, the confession goes on and says, the bodies of the unjust shall by the power of Christ, be raised to dishonor the bodies of the just by his spirit unto honor and be made conformable to his own glory. So we have uh, at death, we have a temporary separation of body and soul. Those in Christ go immediately to be with the Lord. Those that are not in Christ go to an eternal hell. And then when God in Christ returns to make everything again definitively new, there is a resurrection. First of those that are in Christ Jesus rise to eternal life. And then those that are not in Christ Jesus um, will rise uh, for judgment as well. And so that's the second point. There's a resurrection of life for those in Christ, and there's a resurrection of judgment for those not in Christ. There's a resurrection of life for those in Christ, and there's a resurrection of judgment for those not in Christ. And we could look at various places that Scripture talks about this, but I'm just going to... we're going to, let's just look at the words of Christ. John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29. It says, Don't marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And don't marvel at this. An hour is coming when all those in tombs will hear his voice and come out. And those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Right? There is a day, a, a fixed day that's set by the Father in which Christ will physically return. Right? Once Christ's enemies are defeated through the preaching of the gospel, Christ will come. The, the Lord will, in a way, hasten that fixed day through the church who faithfully proclaims Christ's lordship. And in our passage here in John 5, we see some details about that coming. 
John documents these words of Christ, and this comes on the heels of Christ uh, healing a sick man at the pool of um, Bethesda, and after John gives commentary about Jesus being equal with God. This is in the context of Jesus asserting his authority by claiming to be God. He's asserting his authority to the Jews here. Christ says that when he returns, everyone will recognize and obey his voice. When Christ returns, everyone will recognize and obey his voice. Think about that for a moment. Christ, in asserting his authority in this passage, tells the Jews, the unbelieving Jews, that there will come a day when those, including the Jews he was speaking to, will hear his voice and they will obey his voice. His very voice. It makes me think of Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 to 11, when Paul speaks of the exaltation of Christ. He says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, right, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, right, under the earth included there, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of of God, the Father. Right? There will be a day where there's no more resistance. Right? There, there will be a day where there's no more rebellion. Right? There, there will come a day that those in Christ will bow, bow a knee to the lordship of Christ to eternal life, and those not in Christ will bow a knee to Christ to their eternal damnation. As a pastor, he's been deceased for a while now, James Montgomery Boyce, he was a Presbyterian pastor up in Pennsylvania, he said this, he said, the Lord's judgments are so absolutely just, and I would add that his authority is so great, but the Lord's judgments are so absolutely just that even, uh, that in the end, even the damned will agree with the rightness of their damnation. At the return of Christ, all those in the ground will rise, souls reunited with the body. And one of two things will happen according to Jesus in John 5. Those who have done good will receive the resurrection of life. It's the first thing. Let's stop there. What does that mean? What does that mean? Right, our confession says something similar. Chapter 32, paragraph 1 says, God's appointed a day and where he'll judge the world in righteousness by Jesus Christ, to whom all power and judgment is given to the Father, in which day not only the apostate angels shall be judged, but likewise all persons that have lived upon the earth shall appear before the tribunal, tribunal of Christ to give an account of their thoughts, words, and deeds, and to receive according to what they've done in the body, whether good or evil." Now, if we harmonize John chapter 5 and even our confession, chapter 32, our statement of faith there with a passage like Romans 3.10, as Paul quotes Psalm 14 and Psalm 53, which is, none is righteous, no, not one. What What we can be sure of is that Jesus isn't saying that some people are good enough to earn their salvation. That's not what Christ is saying here, and, and as Christians, we know that. But we know based on the whole of Scripture that this isn't the case, but what we have here is a believer's union with Christ being implied. 
The the only one to have done good is the God-man, Jesus. It's the only one to have done good. And, And a believer's identity is so closely tied to that of the Savior that his person and his work is attributed to us. To be in Christ is to have done good. To be in Christ is to have done good. So those in Christ will rise to everlasting life solely because they share union with Christ. They share union with Christ. His good deeds, his perfection and his humanity attributed to our brokenness, our sinfulness. And in exchange, we're judged based on the merits of Christ, not our own merits. But what of the second group? Jesus is those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. In other words, the everlasting wrath of God. What of those? On the one hand, on the one hand, we see the grace of God in the resurrection of those to everlasting life. On the other hand, we see the justice of God in the resurrection of those to judgment. The, The resurrection of Christ, it necessitates that every single person uh, be resurrected, be raised from the dead. And every single person will either be judged, again, according to the person work of Christ, or they will be judged according to their own deeds. So for those who think or live thinking that, that God will weigh their good deeds and bad deeds and compromise his holiness to let you in, the prophet Isaiah says that even our good deeds are like Polluted garments are like filthy rags before a holy God. So you must flee to Christ. You have to flee to Christ. Right? Our God is unchangeably holy, and He invites you to Himself through Jesus Christ. Right? He's unchangeably holy, and He invites you to Himself in Jesus Christ. And what of the new heavens and the new earth? And I'll go quickly here. But the new heavens and the new earth will be our final resting place. Will be our final resting place. And I just want to read for you three passages. They're more lengthy, but my encouragement to you is to allow the word of God to wash over you and to produce hope. Romans 8. If you're in Christ, these are promises for you. Romans 8. Verses 18 to 25, as we set our gaze on Christ, who's coming back. Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope and that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons and daughters, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope, We were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. 
2 Peter chapter 3, verses 9 to 13, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the, the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies, meaning the elemental things, the things that we're in bondage to here, will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed." Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God because, which, uh, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. Again, not what's good, but evil spirits of the age. But according to his promise, we're waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And then we know Revelation 21 verses 1 to 4, John, his vision, saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And he will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. These passages collectively, and we can see other passages elsewhere, they speak to our permanent resting place. And if if, if you're in Christ... This is your hope. This is what you can meditate and reflect on that can sustain you through life's adversities. These are the passages that you can cling to and meditate on as you fight your sin and you put to uh, death the deeds of the flesh. But these passages speak to our permanent resting place. Not heaven, but the new heavens and the new earth. This is the place where there's No more sin, there's no more suffering, there's no more sorrow. This is the place where there's no capacity to sin and there's no serpent in the garden. This is a place where we're with our Lord without any hindrance. God in Christ is waking this world up to that reality. And it starts with us. And it starts with us. This is a reality that we all long for. This is a reality that all creation groans for, and it's coming. It's coming. It's coming as the the lordship of Christ and news of his authority and news of his bodily and eternal resurrection reach all corners of the earth. It's coming as moms and dads and husbands and wives day by day submit themselves to Jesus. It's coming as local churches gather. It's coming as children are raised in the fear and admonition of the Lord. The world is waking up. It's been waking up since the resurrection of Jesus, and it will be finally realized with our resurrection in the new heavens and the new earth. So a few takeaways for us this morning. And these are in your worship guide, so don't stress about jotting them down. Number one is this, every person created in the image of God 
has an eternal soul and will rise to everlasting life in Christ or to eternal judgment and wrath in hell. Every person created in the image of God has an eternal soul and will rise to everlasting life in Christ or to eternal judgment and wrath in hell. Secondly, death is a defeated enemy we need not fear because Christ is bodily and eternally resurrected. Third, contemplating death can help remind us that we are stewards of our lives and motivate us to leverage the time God gives us for His glory. Right? We don't even own our own time. Our own time is a gift from God. Our own bodies were created to glorify God and enjoy Him. So contemplating death helps remind us that we're, we're mere stewards and that we need to leverage the time that God gives us for His glory. And then fourth, what makes heaven heaven, right? And the new heavens and the new earth, the new heavens and the new earth, what makes that great isn't the absence of sin and suffering, but the presence of God experienced without those things, right? What makes heaven and the new heavens and the new earth great isn't the absence of sin and suffering, but the presence of God experienced without those things. We go to the Lord in prayer. God, I thank you for the hope of heaven. And God, I I pray for my brothers and sisters here, Lord, that you would help us all, God, to cling to Christ, to treasure Christ, to long to be with Christ, God, and, and for that to motivate how we live in the here and now. I pray for those that are not Christians this morning, God. I pray that your Holy Spirit would convict them, would draw them to yourself, Lord, and that they would experience the happiness and the joy of having their sins forgiven, the happiness and the joy of being reconciled to you, Lord. So grant us grace, grant us strength, Lord. Pray that your Holy Spirit would remind us of what we've studied here, Lord, as we are so prone to forget it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.